is we're looking at uh, the kinds of attacks that are being made against Christianity, against the Bible, uh, against uh, the God of the Bible. And what we want to do is to understand, number one, some of the arguments, but also to take a good look at, at the tactics that are being used. Because in reality, the tactics that are used are actually much more successful in turning people away from the faith and, getting in, and, and causing individuals to have their faith erode. It's not so much the arguments, because most of the arguments, in fact, all the arguments, there are very good answers to those arguments that show that those arguments, either they're not logical or they're not based on truth um, or they are themselves based on just speculation kind of a thing. Um, but the way that the tactics are used, um, that does create a lot of pressure, uh, especially on individuals that are younger or those that are weak in the faith. You know, nobody wants to be wrong, nobody wants to be made fun of, nobody wants to, you know, be in the out, you know, be out of the group, so to speak. Um, and unless your faith is strong and unless you really matured as a believer, when I say mature, the idea with maturity is not just having biblical knowledge, but it's also the case where the Word of God is shaping your heart and your mind. So that affects your attitudes, that affects the way that you respond uh, to circumstances around you. So, uh, maturity brings about a, a greater understanding of, of who you are. So for the Christian, you have a greater understanding of who you are in Christ. You understand that God has accepted you. That truth then, uh, as that truth settles more deeply in your heart, will then allow you or cause you to be less concerned about what others think about you. That will affect you less. So it doesn't mean that we don't care what people think. We always will. But it will no longer be something that can, con that can control us. We will have, I, was, I would say, we'd have a, less, a lesser fear of man, a lesser fear of what people may think about us. Uh, because that's, a, that's actually a very powerful thing. Uh, it's, we normally think, or maybe we often think, that in the lives of teenagers, it's a very powerful thing. And then as you get older, you grow out of it. But ah, it's not, not really true. Um, we should grow out of it, but it's one of those things that can, that can shape people, not only when they're teenagers, but in their 20s, 30s, 40s, even in their 50s. Uh, individuals can succumb to pressure for whatever the reason. You know, whether it's to, maybe it's to hold on to a job, hold on to a position, hold on to, I guess, uh, whatever they think others think about them. Um, you know, we all, I guess, in a sense, uh, we have an idea of what people, how people see us, what they think of us. Uh, and if that's good, we, we want to hold on to that. And again, that's not necessarily bad, but it should not be something that dominates the way that you make decisions. You know, you know it's, it's what the Word of God says is, is what should dominate our, our, our decisions. So understanding the tactics of, of, of what's being used and how things are being said is important. And so I'm, I'm going to try to spend some time uh, on those things uh, when it becomes apparent so that you can see that. And I want you to really be able to, to grasp that and recognize that uh, so that not only it would be helpful for you, but maybe uh, something also that you can help others to understand uh, when, when those things happen, because it does happen a great deal. So uh, I know what ended last time I read you the, a quick testimony of a guy that used to be an atheist and ended up becoming a believer. I'm trying to get to the end of his uh, testimony in my, in my notes. 
All right. So what we're so what we are now. I have the four claims uh, there because uh, we're dealing with the issue right now. Is God immoral because He allows suffering? Uh, that question. Some some people will rephrase that question, and they will actually say, "God is not good," uh, or "There is no God," and they'll say that um, if God does exist. He can't be good because he allows so much pain and suffering and evil. Or they would say, if, um, uh, or that then means there is no God. And so a lot of individuals think, uh, or maybe assume, that that question uh, is the one thing Christians can't answer. That we have no response to that, and that puts us in the hole, that disproves Christianity, and so once you just, ask, if you just ask the question, you've proved the point and you go on your merry way. Problem with that though for them is the question's been answered a, a lot and they don't like the answer or answers, uh, but there is an answer to that. Uh, and so we want to take a look at them. So there's four claims uh, that are made. So the first one, so if you drop down to where it says God, evil and suffering, claim number one, it, it is a contradiction to say that God is sovereign and God is good in view of all the evil in the world. So when you use the word sovereign, the idea there is that God is ruling or that God is powerful, that God has everything under control. So their argument is, is that's a contradiction. You can't say that God is good and powerful or good and sovereign. You can't say that because the fact that evil exists disproves that. So uh, this argument against God's sovereignty and against uh, God's goodness um, is self-contradictory because it assumes an absolute moral framework. So what do I mean by that? Okay. So everyone that exists, all of us, every single person, believes that there is right and wrong. We all believe that there are morals. Now, we may not even follow what we say we believe, but everyone believes that there are certain things that are wrong. Right? I've, I mean, I've even heard guys in jail who may be guilty of murder and may be guilty of theft and armed robbery will get mad if, they're, if they can't get a hold of their lawyer. They'll say it's wrong for him not to answer the phone. Based on what? What's that based on? And what they'll say is it's because the right thing for him to do is to take my call. It's my case. I'm the one that's going to have to spend time in prison, and so I need to discuss it with him. So if you were to ask the individual, what, who says, who says that he has to take your call? I mean, who, who made that, who made that up? What, what law is there that says that? You know, so, so the moral framework then is, is a list, whether it's written or unwritten, of things that are right and wrong that are absolute. In other words, in every case it is, um, or we might say in every case is right or wrong. So for example, lying. Even though there are a lot of people who lie, those individuals will still get mad when someone lies to them. And what would they say? It's wrong. I can't believe he lied to me. Didn't you lie to the police officer when you got arrested? Yeah, but that's different. <laughs> right? And we, you know, we often think it's different when we're the one doing it. Or we might say this. Yeah, but that was a small lie. This is a big one. All right? So, so we're, kind of, we're fluctuating. But we all do believe uh, that there is an absolute moral framework. The moment anyone believes that there is, in a sense, a universal right and wrong, 
even though they don't think they do, they, they need to answer, answer the question, who decided that? Where did that come from? God's law. All right? Well, that's what we say. They won't say that. And, and that's where they get in trouble. You say, well, how was it determined? They say, well, everybody knows. <laughs> well, everybody doesn't know. How is, how is it determined? Some will say, well, you know, it was hundreds of years ago it was voted on. <laughs> All right, well, that's untrue, but let's just say it was true. So if it was voted on 100 years ago, so if we vote on it again today, is that how we do what's right and wrong? By vote. Is that how we do that? <coughs> well, that may kind of sound good for a moment until the vote goes against what you want, right? So we don't like that. We don't want mob rule. And so the person will get stuck. They, don't, they have no idea. So, but if there's going to be an absolute rule, somebody has, or some group or somewhere, has to have determined how we're going to function as a society. What are the, at least in some general way, what are the rules? And the moment you assume that, you are in trouble. And, and that's why we, it normally naturally leads back to, I believe, to God, because God in one sense, he doesn't have a stake in what is right and wrong. In other words, he doesn't gain from it. He determines what's right and wrong, absolutely. As Christians, we know that. But in the mind of a non-believer, normally any individual who has the power to determine right and wrong, they have an advantage. Right? I have an advantage over you if I'm the one that determines right and wrong. Right? Things are always going to go my way. So if we don't want that to happen, where the rules favor a certain individual, you have to have a being who doesn't, who's not dependent upon that. And that always is going to lead back to God. All right, so these individuals that are already in trouble when they, when they try to dive into this and say that that's a contradiction. And the reason why that's important to know is because a majority of people, like if you ever have a conversation with somebody and they kind of say this or hint at it, almost always they're just repeating what they've heard. They've not thought about this. So you asking them certain questions is important because now you got them. Now they got to answer. You know, they, they brought it up. And so you start to say, well, who determined what, what is right and wrong? Who did, how does that happen? How do we get to a point in our country that we've determined what's right and wrong? I mean, how do we do that? Well, we ain't having faith in them either, like you asked. We have, have faith in them and right. spread the gospel. And, and right. Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, yeah, but for the non-believer, remember, they don't have faith anyway. Well, if we spread the gospel good enough, maybe we can reach out to them. I agree. But remember, for the individual who, doesn't, who believes that God doesn't exist because there's too much evil, he's not going to believe the gospel because he doesn't think there's God. Say what? Well, that's true. All right. But we're trying to prevent that from happening. All right. And the gospel really is always the answer. And there will be individuals that you can say, well, let's come back to this. Let me share this with you. It's never wrong to do that. Uh, now, some individuals say, well, no, 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 no. I want to talk about this first. I say, okay. And so that's why you want to try and keep in mind, it's always a good thing to ask questions because most of the time, people don't like being told things. Right? We, we can handle it for a little while, but we don't like being told because especially if the individual is saying things we don't like. All right? But if you ask me questions, it forces me to have to tell you what I'm thinking. And it may not be as great, at, or they may realize that they're not really thinking anything good. All right? So if there's an absolute moral framework, that would be inconsistent with the worldview in which God is absent. They're going to be in, tr they're going to be in trouble. 
So there's this guy, he's written a lot of books, his name is Alistair McGrath, and he says this. Some atheists argue that the existence of suffering is evil, and therefore is in itself adequate to disprove the existence of God. But this is a curious argument, since closer examination shows that it is self-defeating. An argument from the existence of evil to non-existence of God depends on establishing that suffering is evil. But this is not an empirical observation. It's a moral judgment. Suffering is natural. For it to be evil, a moral framework has to be presupposed. But where does this framework come from? The argument requires the existence of an absolute moral framework if it is to work. So again, what he's saying is, is that when you see evil, we may, we may on the surface think automatically, well, everyone knows that's evil by just looking at it. But that's not the case. It's not evil. We're calling it evil. That's a moral judgment. That's what he's trying to get at, that it's not that conclusion. And I, I mentioned to you last week, I went through a couple of stories of how different cultures view things. And that in those cultures, uh, remember in the one culture, when they told the story of, of Jesus, to them, Judas was the hero. Because Judas betrayed Jesus, and to them, that was the greatest human achievement anybody can ever uh, get to, is to f bring someone to your confidence and then betray them. They just thought that makes you like king, kind of a thing. Um, in certain circles, um, death is, is, uh, is not always viewed wrong. All right? The killing, like, for example, the sacrifice of children. Many people today, religious and non-religious, would say that it's evil to sacrifice children, all right? But there have been for centuries, for thousands of years, people all across the world who thought it was right to sacrifice children. In fact, they might even determine which children would be sacrificed, whether they feed them the crocodiles, or whether they have them bleed out on an altar, or whether they burn them, or whatever, it is, or whatever the case is, they actually think it's right. So that's where we get back to who determines if it's right or wrong. And if they say, well, that's just wrong, you can always say, well, who, what, or what gives you the right to say that's wrong? So are you saying your belief or your culture is better than others? In fact, some people try to argue that when there, you know, there's a lot of arguments about revising history or maybe even American history. There's all kind of, there's a mess with all that kind of stuff. And so when it comes to that, there are those who say that when we study other cultures and we say those cultures are wrong, uh, we are being arrogant because we're assuming that we are better than that culture is because they do certain things that we don't do. And it goes back to what, what we know, sacrificing children. Uh, there's still certain cultures today where they marry off uh, little girls, whether they're six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 11 years old, they marry them off to older men. And in those cultures, that's, that's accepted. I don't say everybody in those cultures thinks it's right, but that's what they do. If we come along and say it's wrong, what, why, who gives us the right? Now again, as the believers, we believe that we know that we say it's wrong because God has given us his law, and that's absolute, so that's what we determine it on. But again, for those who are non-believers, they're the ones telling us that because of all this evil, God doesn't exist. So now they have to answer, they have to answer the question then how can you say anything is wrong? How can you say that? What's that based on? So what we want to do is we want to show them that, that 
it is impossible for them to live consistently and if the world accepted their view of things. And that's, that's what's important. If we want, you want them to be able to see that. Uh, they may not always admit that they see it, but that's what, the, that's what the goal is. That's the point. All right? So the existence of an absolute framework, is, uh, I believe, is widely seen, and it, does, it continues to point to the existence of God, that God does exist. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're pointing to the God of the Bible. We just want them to see that there, there is a supreme being. We, we can start go there, and then we can go into then who is God. And, of course, God of the Bible is the one true God. So, that, so the argument they're trying to make really then, to some people, on the surface, it looks really good and hard to answer until you just think about it and think about what it's saying or what it's implying. So... Uh, the bottom line is, then, is that they're still presupposing an absolute moral framework in making this statement. Uh, to put it in an easier way, um, sometimes an apologist, an apologist is a guy who is, uh, they're not saying they're sorry. Remember, an apologist is one who's defending the faith. All re- I don't know if all religions have it. Many, many religions will have an apologist or people who will defend their faith against arguments. So you have Christianity, we have those who are apologists. Uh, and that's kind of what they do. So uh, sometimes an easier way to answer that, or maybe a more succinct way, is if, if God doesn't exist, then there is no moral absolute framework, which means there is no such thing as evil. If there's, or if there's no such thing as evil, there's no such thing as good. So if there's no such thing as good and no such thing as evil, then why are they bothered? They're, they're, now they're foolish. They're saying, well, I just don't think children should be killed. Why? It's not evil. It's not good. It's not evil. In other words, if, if what they're saying is true, that's the world you have. Nobody wants to live in that world. And if they're honest, they're not going to like that. And they're going to say, well, you know, but good does exist. Right? So even though it's kind of philosophical, it actually really comes out of the, of, of the Scripture. And what we know from the Bible, when you read the Bible, is that not only is God logical, there's a word. It's not, this word isn't in the Bible, but it's what's used a lot. And the word is the antithesis. So the antithesis is important. In other words, there's good. Therefore, there's evil. Because there's evil, therefore, there's good. That is the antithesis of each other. And the idea with that is that God has created a world where an antithesis exists, and that helps us to think through things. That helps us to understand, again, right and wrong and all the particulars and whatever. And that, again, that always comes back and points to God uh, when it comes down to that. Because, again, every single culture that's ever existed follows some kind of a moral code. And the amazing thing is the similarities that exist even among individuals who may even, even worship demons or demonic beings. There's still a moral code that they have. We may not like it. It may not really uh, look like much, but it does exist. And so that's kind of a, a, a thing within humanity that just doesn't go away. And so then these arguments just don't look too good. So uh, let me go on to the next one. Uh, Go through. Okay, wait, let's just jump to the second claim. Yes. 
Well, we would say that, but they wouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was talking to a young man once. He was, when I used to be the chaplain of the jail, on Fridays we would have a gathering where guys could ask anything they wanted to ask. Oh, and we would talk about anything they want to talk about except for their case. And um, so we had this young man that was in there. And um, he was, I don't know how he got into the dorm because he didn't want to be there. And usually that was the only requirement. He had to ask to be in my dorm. And he was there. And he was really upset. He was mad at the world. He was mad at me. He was mad at everyone. And so uh, we, I forget what we were talking about, but he then said, I hate being here. I don't want to be here. He says, I'm only here because I broke the white man's law. So when he said that, got real quiet. So I said, uh, I said, well, who arrested you? He said, the police. I said, no, no, no. I said, were they, I mean, were they white or black or Hispanic? He said, well, they were black. He said, but they were enforcing a white man's law. I said, oh. So you're saying all the laws we have are only for white men? He said, yeah, they're made by white men, they're only for white men. So, you know, in the jail, sometimes you gotta cut through all the garbage. So I said, okay, let me ask you a question. I said, the law of the land says that I am not allowed to sell your grandmother insurance because I don't represent any insurance company. And if I rip her off, I'm breaking the law. Is that a white man's law or is that a good law? He said, well, well that would be a good law. I said, are you sure? I said, because I don't know who wrote it, but they made that law so that I can't rip off your grandmother, but if I do, I can get arrested and go to prison for that. So it's a good law. I said, okay. I said, now, I said, uh, let's say that I, uh, uh, I rape your sister. I said, is that a good law or is that a white man's law? He said, well, that would be wrong. I said, wait, you said you're here for breaking a white man's law. I'm just trying to figure out what are, what are the white man's laws because each time I'm bringing up these laws, you're, you're going to agree they're good laws and they apply to everybody. He said, well, that would be wrong. I said, okay. I said, so you see, I said, the problem here is that the, the, you're saying that you're here for breaking a white man's law, which means you didn't do anything wrong, so you shouldn't be here. And I'm just trying to point out to you that the laws are not based on ethnicity. I said, and we're not gonna get into the court system and the inequities, and most of that's based on class and who has money. We're just getting into the, baking, the breaking of a law. What is the law and who does it apply to? So the law, if it works the way it's supposed to, applies to everyone, no matter what your race. Doesn't matter what your race is. And we never record who made those laws, because it doesn't matter. I said there was usually a mix of people anyway, whoever gets voted in for those four years or six years or whatever. I said, but that's the problem. So your statement that you broke only a white man's law is untrue. I said, you broke the law. Now, I didn't know what he was in for, but I said, so if when you were arrested or pulled over, and they found on you several packets of crack or cocaine, there's a law that applies to everyone, and if you have that on you, you get arrested. And he said, 
How did you know that that was what? I said, well, I didn't. I'm just guessing. I said, but. I said, that's the point. The point is, is that that's a law for everyone. It's not just for a certain race. So what happens is, is that he was trying to justify himself, I guess, to some degree, that he had actually done nothing wrong because he had only violated a white man's law that didn't apply to him. All I wanted to show him was that that wasn't true. The law he violated was a law that applies to everyone. Even if we enforce it unequally, that's a separate problem. It's an issue, but it's a separate problem. The law still applies to everyone, and there's reasons for that. And so therefore, he can't justify himself. If he didn't have those things on him, he wouldn't have been arrested. And so that's, so that's all we're trying to do, is to help individuals see that they're being logically inconsistent with themselves. That, that, you, that we, we don't have the world that, that they're trying to create in their mind that justify their existence. So the second claim is, number two, is that the Bible contains many different answers to the problem of why there is suffering in the world, and many of these answers contradict each other. So that is a, that's their claim, uh, because Christians do try to answer the problem, and so they're saying that, uh, that, that those answers, that number one, there's, there's answers that are different, that the answers contradict each other, and therefore they cannot be true. So there's five major reasons given, given in the Bible as to, that explain suffering, because we still have to deal with that issue. We know there is suffering in the world. People suffer. We know people get sick, uh, and, and we know that there's good people who get sick, and there's evil people who get sick. There's good people who die young, and good people who live long, and there's bad people who die young, and bad people who die young, but they're suffering. Right? There, it's inexplicable. There are certain families. It seems that everyone in their family has just got some kind of serious medical problem, and some other family, they, they don't have anything. It's like they're immune to every disease there is. I mean, there's all these kinds of things happen. So here's, here's uh, so we get to the five explanations. Number one, suffering comes from God as a punishment against sin. Okay, the Bible says that. Now, people don't like that, but that's true. Right? There's stories about that taking place. Uh, God told Adam and Eve that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. That's what happened. Not only did they die, he kicked them out of the garden. So everything was provided for them by God on one hand, and the next moment they sin, now they've got a world of hurt. All kinds of trouble. All right? So they were suffering. And, and, they, and the suffering began with them. And the Bible's clear about it. It's because of sin. And we know it ourselves. Sometimes things, bad things that happen to us because of our sin. All right? That's just that's how it goes. Um, and we know that to be true. Second thing that the Bible talks about is suffering is the result of human beings sinning against other human beings. God allows us to make choices, and we are able to make them even if they are damaging to ourselves and or others. Again, book of Genesis. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. They begin to have kids. We don't know how many they had. We, just only, we only know about a few of them, but the famous story of Cain and Abel. We know that uh, they brought an offering to God. God accepted the one, not the other. Uh, Cain got upset. He murdered his brother. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because uh, Abel did nothing wrong. Abel didn't, he didn't hurt, his, he didn't hurt his, his brother. He didn't do anything against him. Yet he suffered early death because his brother sinned against him. All right? So murder is clearly wrong. 
there is suffering that takes place. But it comes to jealousy also, wouldn't it? Well, same thing. Yeah. It's all wrapped into that, absolutely. All right, so the thing is, is that, so there is suffering, and the suffering is a result of human beings. God didn't do this. Cain did this, and Cain's held responsible for that. All right, and that answer does not contradict the first one. Both of those are true at the same time. Thirdly, suffering is also redemptive. What do we mean by that? Suffering exists in order for God to bring about a good that would not have been possible without evil. Okay? The shining example of that is the life of Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, was that evil? Yes, it was. It was God's plan, but it was evil because Jesus had done what wrong? Nothing. When Jesus was um, uh, beaten, was that evil? Yes, he was innocent. He was beaten more than once you know, during these trials he was having, and he was basically railroaded to where he ended up being crucified. That was evil. But God used that evil to redeem us. Right? So it's still evil, right? but it served the purpose of God. Uh, and revealed God's, that God is wrath, wrathful and just and loving all at the same time. Uh, fourthly, suffering is a test of faith. Right? Remember, suffering doesn't always result in death. There's, there's different kinds of suffering or different degrees of suffering. And there are times, we know, again, we see it in the Bible, we've experienced it in life, where God allows us to suffer to test our faith, to, to sometimes it's to show us where our faith is, or maybe to show us and to show us that that we are strong and that encourages us, or maybe it's to show us that our faith isn't as strong as we thought it was, and we need to kind of wake up on that. But the point is, there's a testing of our faith, which is always good for us. He talks about that; it, it refines our faith. The idea, uh, the the um, uh, symbolism we usually use is what you do with gold. You know, if you want if you want gold to be pure. You heat it up. I mean, you heat it up big time. And then all the garbage in there floats to the top, and then you scoop it off. And so there are times in our lives that maybe there's some, maybe there's some sin in us or some bad habit, whatever, whatever you want to call it, and we're, either we're unaware of it, maybe we don't want to be aware of it, or what have you, and then God, in a sense, turns the heat up in your life, and that then comes to the surface or becomes apparent. You know, because you, you become irritable or whatever happens to be, all right? Or you lose control or, or whatnot. So uh, suffering then can be a test of faith. And so God used that. So again, in all of these, there's no contradiction. All of these things can be true at the same time. They don't contradict each other. Then fifthly, and this is the one that people don't like at all, suffering at times is mysterious, meaning God doesn't give us the exact reason why we suffer, but he expects us to trust him. It's probably the most difficult. We do know from the Bible that there are always reasons why God allows evil to happen. But God doesn't always tell us what they are. He has his purposes. Okay, he's, he's doing what he's doing. Remember that God is moving all of human history in a particular direction. There's, there's a time when all of human history is going to come to an end. And there's going to be a judgment. Sin is going to be put away forever. And there's the new heaven and the new earth. And all of, all of history is moving in that direction. So God is dealing with nations as well as 
communities, families, and individuals. And so uh, that is, uh, and so, but God doesn't tell us why. Uh, in, there's this old book um, that I was reading last year. I wish I remember the name. It's a novel. Um, but anyway, in this, in this book, and it's kind of a humanistic look at things, but he, this, is kinda, this, is, this kind of explains what's going on. There's this guy, he's a wizard, and he's supposed to be very, very wise, and he takes an apprentice under him who's eventually going to be the king. And his job is to teach him and to show him things and help him become wise and learn stuff. And so they're going to travel, and he's going to go see these different people. And so he goes um, to see this, uh, um, this uh, man who's very, very wealthy. And he just asks him if they can just stay the night, uh, have a meal, and they will be on their way. And this very rich man who has plenty of room in his house treats them very rudely and says, no. He says, you can stay in my barn. And uh, so they stay in the barn. The guy doesn't give any food and none of that. And so uh, uh, while they're there in, in the barn, the uh, old man, the wizard, discovers that there's a hole in the wall of the barn. And so the next day, what he does, without telling the rich man, is he goes and he hires a carpenter to come and fix the hole. And this apprentice who's with him is like, what are you doing? This guy is mean. He's evil. He is selfish. Why would you pay to fix his barn? And he said, well, you see. He said, what you didn't know and what this man doesn't know is behind that a hole, in that hole behind the wall, there's a treasure. And if he went out and saw that himself, he would discover the treasure. And the wicked man will become richer. What I know is now that it's fixed, he won't discover it. In several years, he's going to die. His grandson is going to inherit the farm. His grandson's a very good, gentle human being. He's going to find the treasure and the treasure, will, he will be rewarded. And of course, the young guy says, well, why didn't you tell me that? He goes, well, I just did. So then later on, they go, and they, um, they, they, go, they, they travel, and they find an, another farm, and they ask to stay, and it's, it's a very, the guy's poor. I mean, he, he's got nothing. But he invites them in, and whatever food he has, they, you know, they eat together, and he gives them his own bedroom and his own bed for them to sleep in. And the next day, uh, they get ready to, 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 uh, to leave, and this man's uh, horse is, uh, is sick. And uh, um, the, uh, the boy, the, the apprentice knows that the wizard can heal the horse. And he doesn't heal the horse. And, and the horse dies. He said, he said, I don't understand. Why didn't you heal the man's horse? That man is poor. That man was good. That man was kind. That man was gracious. Well, why, didn't, why didn't you hear the horse? He says, well, he says, uh, there's, there's war. There's rumors of war. And there's men running around, and, and they're stealing horses and young men to go into battle. He says, when they come to this house, they're going to see that the horse is dead, and they're just going to leave. But this poor man has a young son in the back of the house. They're not going to look for him because they're going to assume he has nothing because his horse is dead and the young man will not be drafting the war and therefore he won't be killed and he'll live. We've blessed the old man. 
And so the idea with all of that is that many times, just like with this young, with this apprentice, he did not know the bigger picture. He was unaware of all these other purposes that were working. And so when it comes to God, it's not magic. You know, it's not like, you know, this hocus pocus kind of stuff. But God really is sovereign. He really does know the future. And so when, when individuals die and when individuals live and all of that, there's all these other factors that are, that are coming in. When I was, uh, when I was the interim at a church back in the 90s, there was an older gentleman in the church who, who, had, who was looking, going through his family history and he was, and he was looking at um, his family tree and trying to trace his background, his roots, you know, where did his family come from and all that kind of stuff. And so he came across um, uh, one, of his fam- one of his family members from, I guess, the, uh, it was the late 1600s or so that lived up in Massachusetts. And he found some correspondence that was between this one family and a pastor that was over in, uh, in the UK. And so apparently, uh, in this one family, uh, this lady, uh, and this was very common back then, she had given birth to nine children, but only one lived. Uh, she had given birth to nine children, eight boys, one girl. The girl lived. All the boys died somewhere between two months and uh, a year and a half. And so, and what had happened was when we came across these letters is she had just given birth to the ninth, ninth boy and he didn't make it to his first, he didn't make it to his first birthday. So her husband, he had an uncle who lived uh, close by and he wrote to his friend who was a pastor in the UK and said, I don't know what to tell this young woman she, and he explained the situation, all the children that she lost. Could you please write her a letter to comfort her? Now, and they were all Christians. And so he agreed he would, and he sent a letter to her. Now remember, it's a very different time, 1600s, than our time. Because we would be aghast at this. But this is what he wrote. Now remember now, this is a letter of comfort. Now I don't have it memorized, I, I, but I can give you the gist of the things that he said. So he sends her a letter, says who he is says that he's been asked to write her a letter, says that he's been, oh, he is aware of the number of children that she's lost uh, and what a great tragedy that is. And then he said this. He said, but what we must do is we must look uh, to the Lord for comfort and realize the great wisdom that the Lord has. And perhaps it's a very good thing that your children have died so young because we live in a world that is increasingly evil and the Lord has spared your sons the evil of the world and the influence the world may have on them. Because what you can be assured of is that you will see all of your boys in heaven because they've not yet been corrupted by the world. He says, along with that, perhaps the Lord has saved you from committing grave sin. Because you've lost so many children, perhaps this ninth child that you had would have tempted you to be idolatrous and idolize and worship your child and love your child more than you love God. And if that was to take place, you would do a great disservice to your husband, to your child, to yourself, and to God. And who knows what misery that would bring on your life. So we should rather sit down and thank the Lord with great joy that he has spared us from trouble and tribulation and perhaps 
very grave and serious sin. So she wrote him back. This is what she said. Thank you so much for directing my eyes back to our wonderful, loving, and gracious God. These things I had not thought about, and you are right. We do live in a world that is not only evil, but is becoming more evil by the year. And who knows if I would, even would have been good enough to train my children to avoid the great temptations that are out there. And you are right as well that I had a great, great love for my child even before he was born. And I loved him so dearly that I might have even rejected the Savior himself because I was so grieved by the loss of my son. And so you have set me straight on the right path so that I will once again love the Lord with all of my heart, mind, and soul and always know that he always knows what is right. He knows what is best. And his wisdom surpasses mine. And I will never know the mind of the Lord, but the Lord can be trusted. I can never thank you enough for encouraging my heart. <laughs> I can imagine somebody with today would have written him and said, how dare you, <laughs> kind of a thing. But, but the thing was, is that, but there, but there was a seriousness there. You could tell that she was seriously devoted to the Lord. What he told her was true. I guarantee you, non-believers don't get that. They don't understand that. Because they don't understand suffering. Remember that when it comes to suffering, no one likes suffering. But we can, we can explain it. All right? We can explain suffering. If a person doesn't believe in God, how do they explain suffering? Because suffering still exists. They don't have an explanation. They, do, they don't have one. So they are actually in a much worse situation than we are. We know, when I, all these five things are only are true, we know the real history of the world. The real history of the world is when God first created, there was no sin in, on the earth. God made Adam and Eve perfect. And we know that Adam and Eve made a decision and they chose to disobey God. And when they did that, they brought upon themselves and upon all of their offspring, which we are also part of that number, the curse of sin. Sin entered the world. And so we know that all that takes place, all death, disease, tragedy, catastrophe, you name it, it's because of the curse of sin. We sin because of the curse of sin. Remember that the Bible makes it clear that none of us become sinners when we sin. All of us sin because we're already sinners. That's the natural bent all of us have. No one's ever taught their child to do wrong. You can teach a child to do more wrong, but we've never taught our children to do wrong. We're, we normally try to teach our children to do good. All right? So, and then we also know, again, in that narrative that we have, is that when all this took place and man rebelled against God, God did not throw mankind away. He made a promise from the very beginning that he was going to redeem man. He was going to make a way for man to come back to God. He was going to do that because man became the enemy of God. We know when you get to the story of Noah that the whole world had become so unbelievably wicked that God was going to destroy the entire earth, which he did, but he did find a righteous man, Noah, and his wife and family, and he spared them, 
and began again with them. And we know that how long did it take for evil to come? By the time the boat landed, just a few days, because Noah got drunk uh, and made a fool of himself, and his son somehow sinned against him, which we think he just, he brought shame on his dad by telling his brothers, and it just went downhill from there, just within a matter of minutes. And so that leads us to the story of, of Christ. That's why we talk about the, what, you know, what we believe to be the greatest story ever is what we call the gospel. Because there's this problem that we have that we cannot solve. We can never undo what has been done. We can't even undo what we've done. And we can never be good enough to enter God's heaven because the requirement for heaven is not that you sin less than, than, uh, than others. And it's not that you just have more good than sin. It's that you have zero sin. You, you have to have zero sin to enter heaven to be qualified. So nobody qualifies. But God knows that. And God knows and said, I can fix this. And the way he fixed that was by sending his son. So the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and became a human being. And he lived this perfect life. And he was unstained by sin. And so then when he willingly allowed himself to be uh, arrested because he knew that he was going to be crucified, he then became the sacrificial lamb. And so God laid on him our sin. And he then was punished as if he had done all the things that we were going to do. All of us that are saved, all the evil that we've done and are going to do, Jesus was punished as if he was the one that was guilty himself of doing it. And he did that, he did that willingly. And then when he was uh, buried, he didn't stay buried, but we know that the sacrifice that he made was accepted by God because God raised him from the dead. And then the Bible tells us clearly that he is the first fruits of more to come. Meaning that those who would place their faith in Christ would also be raised from the dead. And we would be with God for all of eternity. So we have an answer to evil. Remember that for many people, the main reason that they actually want this argument to be true, and the main reason why they get angry, even when you tell them what the Bible says about suffering, is they don't want God. They don't want there to be any being that tells them what they should and shouldn't do. That's human nature. It's our sin nature. We don't like it. We don't want anyone, much less God, telling us everything. I've had people even tell me that. I think I told you, some of you heard, heard me tell you the story. My dad went to go see a guy. He was a Chinese guy in Hawaii. He was head of a, of a, a very large gang. You might even call it the mob. Um, but he was notorious. They, they, were, they were convinced that he was guilty for at least, he did, not that he did all of them, but for having a, a very large number of people killed through the years. And they got him uh, for killing his mother. And so he was in prison and he was, he was sentenced. He was going to go away uh, for the rest of his life. And my dad uh, went to go see him. And uh, this guy, he was, he was pretty notorious and he was pretty wicked, and so they had this guy in isolation for the protection of those in prison. Usually you're in isolation to protect you from the prison, but they were protecting the prisoners from him. And so my dad went to go see him. So my dad uh, spent about uh, an hour and a half, maybe two hours with him, explained in great detail the gospel. And the man, the Chinese man, agreed with him that the gospel was, was the best story he'd ever heard. He believed it was true absolutely convinced that he was a sinner, knew he had sinned, 
and knew that he deserved hell, but he refused to become a Christian. And my dad asked him why. And he said, because if I become a Christian, that then means there are some people that deserve to die that won't die. And I need to make sure that that happens. And my dad said, you're going to prison on the mainland. And the guy says, that's not an obstacle. And then my dad said, you know that most likely, if you don't place your faith in Christ now, you never will. And you will die in your sin. And you will go to hell. And the man said, I know. I mean, I had never heard anyone say that so clearly. I didn't hear it, but my dad was telling me. I, just, I, I thought for sure if somebody understood that much, why they would automatically believe in Christ. But that's not true. The, the, you know, sin, it blinds us. Uh, and uh, the, simp the simple statement is this. Sin makes us stupid. All right? And that's exactly what happened to this guy. And as far as I know, he's never become a believer. I don't know if he's alive or not anymore. I have no idea. Uh, I have to ask my dad. He might know. But anyway, so remember that when it comes to this, this supposed problem of evil, that when people uh, raise that issue, for many of them, because obviously we can't say for all of them. I think for some, there may be a few people that really is something they, they wrestle with and they actually struggle with it, right? It really does bother them. But for many individuals, they only raise these kinds of issues because they are grasping at anything that will ease their conscience so they can somehow justify their unwillingness to believe in God. That's, that's what it comes to. It's not that they can't believe in Christ. They don't want to. That's really what it comes down to. That's why we pray so hard for people. You know, we don't, we don't pray that we just have better arguments because you, you don't really argue anyone into the kingdom. You know, the Bible makes it clear that God the Father, uh, through his spirit, convicts them of sin and wrongdoing, convicts them of the judgment of Christ and, and that, you know, God takes the blinders off when they believe. And, uh, but remember that man, he, he doesn't want to believe. That's his problem. He doesn't want that. He's so lost in himself, he doesn't, he doesn't want it. Um, and so that's really where all this is coming from. Yeah, sure. Yeah. He believed it was true, but he didn't put his trust in it. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if I, did we talk about it last week or was it in my sermon? Or is it in this week's sermon? I don't remember. I think it was Sunday. I, ta I talked about faith and trust and that trust is actually a better word so yeah so he believed it so a person can't believe that something is true and not put their trust in it and so there are many people who believe that the bible is true that jesus really existed and they'll even say they believe jesus died for sin yeah i think in john 10 9 10 so that would that answer the question a little bit yeah it's a it's a sin is a it's it, it hardens the heart and it's uh very tough. That's why the hardening of the heart because of sin, that's why it's, it's unusual to see older people come to Christ. It's not impossible, but it's rare to see, for example, someone in their 80s become a believer who is a non-believer. I mean, I, have you ever witnessed an 80-year-old person repent of their sin and come to Christ? I've seen it twice. 
I, I, it just doesn't happen. It's just, it's so rare. Uh, and that's because sin makes the heart hard. Uh, how many times have we seen kids come to Christ? We see that a lot, actually. They, they believe. I mean, they, you know, uh, I remember when I was nine, and when the pastor shared the gospel with me, I mean, he's telling me, not, not only was he telling me stuff I already knew, I mean, I was, I was almost, you know, I'm not thinking like an adult then, but I'm, it, to me it was like, well, of course it's true. Well, of, of course Jesus died for my son. I know that. Well, of course he rose from the dead. I mean, it, everybody knows that, you know? And then he said, you know, have you ever asked Jesus to forgive you? I said, well, no. And he said, we need to do that. And he kind of went through the whole thing. And he said, do you want to do that? Absolutely. I mean, it was just like no doubt, you know? It was, uh, struggles came later, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but when you're a kid, you know, it's just like, well, it's just absolutely true. Uh, and so uh, that's where people are. So again, some individuals will say that these five things that we've gone through tonight are contradictory, but they do not contradict each other. Um, it's normally they just don't like the explanations uh, from the Bible. So what we'll do next week is uh, we'll deal with claims three and four. And then we'll move on uh, to some of the other types of statements that are made uh, by uh, non-believers, usually individuals who are what we call academics, professors in colleges and stuff. We'll move to other kinds of statements they make that uh, try to undermine the Bible and then show how uh, in each of those instances what they're saying is untrue. Uh, and then also notice the way they're saying it to convince individuals, or at least to cause individuals to begin to doubt their faith. Uh, it's really very clever uh, until you learn what it is. And then you realize it's, it's almost like a, it's a manipulation psychological trick. It's not really, a, it's not a magical trick, but uh, it's just a, you know, it, you'll see it in a lot of different kinds of arguments, but it's used uh, against Christianity as well. So we need to be aware of those things uh, so that we won't uh, be seduced by them. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your kindness, your grace, your love. We thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for the explanations you give to us uh, for pain and suffering. Father, like the rest of the world, we don't like it, and we ourselves at times suffer. Uh, but, Father, we are grateful that you, that you have given us answers. We thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of pain and suffering, that you never leave us alone. We thank you, Lord, that we will be completely delivered from pain and suffering in the future. And, Father, we're grateful. And Father, we ask that you would continue to remind us of the importance of, of sharing the faith, the sharing of the gospel with others. That Father, they may be spared uh, the great evil that lies ahead. We're grateful, Father, again for, for the word and for really the fact that you are so honest with us in explaining all of the difficulties that are in the world and the answer. So, Father, we ask now that you would keep us strong. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to remain in your word, that we would read your word every day, and that our hearts would be encouraged. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.